And a recent blog post, uh, professional basketball player Landry Fields tells of a time when he was hobbling around on one crutch, trying and struggling to get his cell phone out of his back pocket. He had been a starter for two different NBA teams, but now he writes, I got injured, and then injured again, and then injured again. An elbow, a hand, a hip, an unholy trinity that slowly, progressively, and painfully dragged away my ability to play basketball for several seasons. My dream, my deepest desire, my identity were all suddenly in danger. It felt like life had been written in dry erase marker, and God came and smudged what had been clear before. Once a star basketball player in Madison Square Garden, and now through three years of unplanned, unwanted physical issues in my house, straining just to check my phone. Uh, it, was a, it was a bad time for him. It was a hard time in his life. But a door was opening in Landry Phil's heart, as we'll see in a few minutes, that had been closed before. Uh, Bill Arnold is an Old Testament professor, and he tells a story of meeting a young man named Jim with whom he had very little in common. Uh, Bill Arnold was a, a white-collar professor type. Uh, the guy named Jim was a blue-collar handyman who was struggling to make ends meet, picking up odd jobs as he could. But they struck up a very real friendship and talked on a regular basis. Uh, one day, Jim told Bill that uh, he was having issues with his girlfriend. They were, they were living together. They weren't married. Things weren't going well, and he was depressed. And <clears throat> Bill took this opportunity to begin to talk with him about Christianity, to talk with him about Jesus Christ. Jim just pulled away with that. He was very negative about it. He rejected it. So things go kind of as they were for a while. And a few months later, Jim's girlfriend moved out. And this time he was even more depressed and discouraged. He was borderline suicidal. Uh, he was in a very bad place, just as Landry Fields had been in a bad place. But a door was beginning to open in his heart that had been closed before. Uh, we've been looking in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've seen uh, that 1 Samuel is set during the time of the judges. Israel as a nation has turned their back on God. They, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Uh, in chapter 4 through 6, last week we saw that Israel was going into battle with their perennial enemy, the Philistines. Uh, and they went into battle without consulting God, and they lost. And so instead of going back and consulting God, they go and, and grab the Ark of the Covenant, which is what the box, the golden box that contained the Ten Commandments, and they tried to use it like a lucky rabbit's foot. They said, oh, well, we didn't use this. We didn't do this right the last time. So they go and grab the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it into battle, and they lose again. And the Ark is captured. And Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the priest, or the priests themselves, they die. And then when Eli, the priest, finds out that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, he dies. And then his daughter-in-law, who's, who's giving birth, she dies. But before she gives birth, she names her child Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. The Ark eventually comes back, it's an interesting story, it eventually makes its way back to Israel. But once it gets back, 70 of the Israelites handle the Ark of the Covenant properly, and they are all struck down by God and die. It was a dark day in Israel, but a door was beginning to open in Israel's heart that had been closed before. Verse 
verse 2 that we're about to read says that all of Israel lamented after the Lord. All of Israel lamented after the Lord. And it's in that context that Samuel walks to the podium, picks up the mic and says, Alright, are you guys for real? Are you serious? Are you really going to turn back to God? Are you serious about repenting? And if you are, this is what it's going to look like. Maybe this morning you feel like Landry Fields or like Jim or like the Israelites. Maybe you're in a, in a bad place. But maybe in the midst of that bad place, a door is beginning to open in your heart that's been closed before. And maybe you're beginning to, to, to realize or beginning to want for the first time to wonder what would it look like for me to return to God, to come back to God, or maybe even to turn to Him for the first time. Well, what I want us to think about as we read this passage is what would that look like? What would that look like in the midst of that difficulty to sense your need of God and to actually return to Him? So, First uh, Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read this entire chapter beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. The day that the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim a long time passed, some twenty years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines people of God said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines. And threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territories from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there 
also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, this is your word, and we pray and ask now that you would apply it to our lives, uh, that you would open our hearts to receive it and to see those places uh, where perhaps we need to repent uh, and return to you, the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Well, what does it look like to return to the Lord? What does it look like to return to the Lord? Three things from our text this morning. It looks like repentance, relying on an intercessor, and remembering. Repentance, relying, and remembering. First of all, I want to talk about this idea of repentance. Uh, during these days of Israel, uh, when Israel was turning her back on God and everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes, the people of Israel didn't just worship no God. Right? There wasn't just this vacuum there. They worshipped other gods. Verse 4 talks about the Baals and the Asterisks. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility, and Asterisk was his female companion right, in, in Canaanite religion. The Canaanites believed that fertility came to their families and to their crops and to their livestock when Baal and Asterisk were having regular relations. But you just didn't sit around waiting for this to happen, waiting for them to get in the mood. They had female prostitutes who actually worked the shrines of Baal. And so the Canaanite men would come and engage these prostitutes, hoping that this would encourage their, their god and their goddess to get in the mood as well. And that this would bring rain on the crops and blessing in the form of children to them. And so you can see why back in the book of Judges, uh, it says in chapter 2 that the Israelites poured after other gods and bowed down to them. And you can see why the Israelites might find this type of worship attractive. Uh, they would go and, 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 and they would you know, do what they did there, bow down to their gods. They said, hey, these are, the, these are the local gods. These are the ones who will bless us. And this is much more contemporary. So that's what's going on in the nation of Israel. So... After God now has continually brought Israel under judgment for their sin, and he's done this again, after the glory has departed, after these men have been killed looking into the ark, after the consequences are being seen and felt, Israel begins to lament. They finally begin to lament their sin. And so Samuel says in verse 3, if this is real, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. In other words, Samuel says, okay, I see you crying about this and I hope this is real, but if this is real, here's what this needs to look like in your life. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines repentance as a heartfelt sorrow for sin a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, we talk about faith frequently. Repentance is the backside of that coin uh, of faith. They're two different sides of the same coin. Uh, John Train likes to say that like faith has three elements of knowledge and assent and trust. Repentance also has some similar elements. Uh, the first of these three elements of repentance is sorrow sorrow for sin. You see this in verse 2. When the Israelites lament, they cry, they weep over their sin. But, there's a counterfeit 
to this to a genuine repentance uh, that looks a lot like it but isn't. Second Corinthians seven verse ten says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." Godly grief, godly sorrow over sin leads to life. Worldly sorrow only leads to death. The problem is, at least on the front end, they both kind of look the same. So what's the difference? Worldly sorrow is more of a sorrow simply over the consequences of sin. Sorry that you got caught. Sorry that you're ashamed. Sorry that this is embarrassing. Sorry that this is there are unpleasant consequences to your sin. Uh, this is the type of repentance we often demonstrate as children when our parents catch us doing something we shouldn't have done. We're sorry. We may even be crying. But what we're really concerned about is the punishment. What we're really concerned about is the consequences. We're not grieving what we've done. We're not grieving that, we're broken our, that we've broken our parents' hearts. We're worried about the consequences. It's possible to have that type of sorrow over sin in relationship to God as well. We're sorry about the consequences. We're sorry that it's made a mess of things. We're not sorry that we're breaking our Father's heart. And so there's more to true repentance than just sorrow. True repentance also involves assent. Assenting to the fact that my sin is ultimately against God. The Israelites acknowledge this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. We read the Israelites saying, We have sinned against the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. This is the repentance of King David when he realizes the gravity of his uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. He says, It was against you, Lord, ultimately, and you only that I sin. My sin, your sin, in the ultimate sense, is not just against other people, but it's actually against God. This is the type of repentance that's pictured in the life of the prodigal son when he returns home to his father, saying to his father, realizing his sin, but not yet realizing all of his grace, saying, treat me like one of your servants. Treat me like one of your hired men. He realizes his sin. True his sin. A true repentance involves an assent that my sin has been committed against my Father, that my sin is committed against God. But there's a third element to true repentance. It involves turning away from our idols and turning to God. Real repentance is actually tangible. Verse 3, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. True repentance involves a change of direction. It involves putting away our idols. It involves turning to God. Uh, Landry Fields writes, the NBA basketball player that we mentioned at the beginning, says, I've never struggled to believe in God, but I've lived a lot of my life as a person who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. I already had a gospel of my own. The promise that love and wealth are the world's to give to the popular and gifted. I didn't need to trust God because I already trusted another God, the NBA. Three years ago, Christ slowly started to change all that. 
God gave me a gift through multiple season-ending injuries. God gifted me faith through my suffering. Through suffering, God molds us, molds in us godly sorrow that brings repentance. Godly sorrow is the funeral that God puts on for our idols. That's a great line. Godly sorrow is the funeral that God puts on for our idols. God lets us feel the pain of loss so that we can experience the joy of Him carrying our burdens. Suffering is the hook that God uses to bring us back to Himself, collapsed and tired from slaving for sin, which Jonathan Edwards calls our cruel taskmaster, which oppresses and chastises. It's the earthquake that exposes idols and dethrones sin in our hearts. When I was playing for the Knicks, I knew God existed and disapproved of the life I was living, overindulging in alcohol and sexual promiscuity. But I preached the gospel of cheap grace to make myself feel better. With the injuries, God exposed that I was relying on something other than grace painted to look like grace, a cheap grace that was as useful for my suffering as a cardboard cut out of Jesus. When the injuries came, I started reading scripture. I had the odd, unsettling thought, I don't think I'm really saved. I read in James, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. My casual Christianity needed to be told. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. God dims the light of our life with suffering so that our hearts embrace a grace that really sustains. The Israelites, for them, they turned to the Baals and the Asherahs, hoping that serving these gods would bring the blessings of their life that they really longed for. Landry Fields served the NBA. He turned to the NBA to act to alcohol, to sexual promiscuity. These were his idols. These were the things he was looking to to give his life meaning and satisfaction and joy. You all have them. What, what are your idols? What are the things that, that you put uh, before God? Where are you turning instead of turning to God? Idols are anything that, that are anything that's bigger than God in our life can be an idol. Uh, we make idols out of work, out of sports, uh, out of our own sense of independence, uh, out of our families. Uh, we make idols out of being in the know, being in the inner ring, being on the inside. Our, our hearts are idol factories. So we make an idol out of out of almost anything. But there there are four kind of Heart idols that, that, can, that, are, that I think are, are common to all of us. Uh, and the external idols are often just the fruit of these, these deeper idols. Um, comfort. <coughs> comfort is a big idol. Uh, and that often shows up in our life as, as, boredom, as boredom. Approval is a big idol for many of us. And that often shows up as cowardice. We don't want to do anything to make people upset with us. We want their approval. Control is an idol. And that shows up in our hearts and our lives as worry and anxiety. Power is a big idol. And that shows up in our hearts and lives as anger. This big four cluster of idols, comfort and approval and control power. What would it look like in your life to, to begin to deal seriously with those idols? To, to put away, but to put away the idols that you serve and to serve him only. What would that look like? How would how could repentance be tangible in your 
Those items are hard items are harder to put away than a, than a block of wood, aren't they? You can't just drag them out and, all right, we're going to throw them in a pile and burn them and walk away and be done with it because you carry them with you. And that's one reason it's very important to remember that there is this initial act of repentance in coming to faith in Jesus. But that doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. So that means that the Christian life is this continual repenting as we see sin in our lives. Continually turning from our idols and turning to Christ. Uh, I love the way that the Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about repentance. It says, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it under God, unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. With full purpose of, I'm purposing to, full, to, to follow God. It doesn't mean I'm always going to follow him perfectly. I am going to sin. Uh, remember Jim, the guy that, that, one of the guys we mentioned in the opening story, he wasn't a believer. He's depressed. He's almost suicidal because his girlfriend's left him. He's rejected Christianity in the past. But he shows up at the office of this Old Testament professor again. And, <clears throat> you know, Bill had talked to him about the gospel in the past and he resisted. But, but, but this time, you think maybe it's going to be different. You'd hope it would be different. But he's again sort of resistant. Bill gives him a few verses. He takes them home. He begins to read the scriptures. He begins to search the scripture and read the Bible. And he actually does come to faith in Jesus Christ. He believes the gospel. He repents of his sin. He turns to Jesus. And so he begins to grow. And the two of them meet together over a period of months. But then Jim and his girlfriend get back together. And they move in together again. And he doesn't seem to see any contradiction with this and his newfound faith. And Bill's kind of like, I need to confront him about this. I need to talk to him about this. And he's been praying about that, and he's finally working himself up to talk to him about it. And Jim walks into his office for breakfast and voluntarily says, I broke up with my girlfriend. Something just didn't seem right about that anymore. And that's what the Spirit of God does in our lives as believers, as we're His children. He does begin to convict us of our sin. There's remaining sin in our, in our lives. But the Holy Spirit is gracious and kind and He works and He brings us to repentance again uh, to renewed faith in Jesus Christ. There's this initial repentance but there's this continual daily repentance in the life of believers in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther used to say that all of life is faith and repentance. Every day is faith and repentance. Well, returning to God first of all revolves repentance and that involves godly sorrow and ascending to the fact that my sin is really against God at the end of the day. And it involves tangible actions of actually turning from my idols and turning to God. The second thing, though, that turning to God involves is relying on an intercessor. Relying on someone to intercede for us. The Israelites have sinned against God. They need somebody to be the go-between. Somebody to stand between them and God and to cry out on their behalf. And Samuel fills this role for them. Samuel functions both as a judge and a priest who intercedes with God for the Israelites. Look at verse 5. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel and Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. 
So they gathered in Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. As, as they gather and they fast and they pour out water, we don't have any idea what that was about. Uh, commentators really don't know what that means that they were doing that. But it's, it's, it's coupled in with this act of repentance. As they do all this, Samuel prays for them. He intercedes with God on their behalf. And as he's doing that, the Philistines say, hey, this looks like a good time to attack. And so the Philistines attack. And so the Israelites' newfound faith and repentance is tested here. Are they going to continue to cry out to God? Or are they going to go back to their old idols? Are they going to try to save themselves? Or are they going to ask God to save them? Well, look what happens in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, the praying part we kind of get, right? You kind of say, okay, well, that makes sense that he would cry out to God. But what about the lamb? What was the deal with the lamb? Why is this a part of the ritual? Uh, in the book of Leviticus, uh, the lamb is offered as a burnt offering. Well, let me back up. We're told that the lamb is offered as a burnt offering by Samuel. The book of Leviticus tells us what these burnt offerings were about. Burnt offerings were sacrifices that were offered as a way to atone for your sin. And what that looked like is bringing a lamb to the temple, and then as that lamb is sacrificed, before that lamb is sacrificed, you place your hand on the head of the lamb. And what is being symbolized there is, is you're saying, I deserve what that lamb is getting. I'm the one that deserves to be punished. But I'm, I'm placing my sin on the lamb, and the, the, the lamb is bearing the consequences of my sin. The lamb is taking the blame for what I've done. It's, it's bearing my punishment. Um, Friday night, some of you were there. A great football game, Sparkberg High, and, and Dorman played over at Wofford. Um, Sparkberg was winning big, but it, and they wound up winning, but it felt like they were about to blow it in kind of middle of the fourth quarter. There was one, one series <coughs> they finally stopped Dorman, and it was like fourth and half a mile and Dorman was punting, but Sparkberg roughed the punter like, terribly, and then fumbled the punt. And he just felt like at this moment the whole thing's going to unravel and Dorman's going to come back and win the game. And if that had happened, people would have looked back at that play. And people would have perhaps blamed the guy who fumbled the punt. And if he hadn't fumbled the punt, they would have blamed the guy who ran into the kicker. And if they didn't blame him, they would have blamed the special teams coach. And they hadn't blamed him, they would have blamed the head coach for some of his play calling. And if they hadn't blamed him, they would have blamed the referees for some questionable calls. But someone was going to take the blame. Someone was going to bear responsibility for that loss. Someone was going to take the hit. When, when Samuel sacrificed that lamb, the lamb was taking the hit. The lamb was taking the blame for what Israel had done. The lamb was suffering the, the consequences from the sins of the people of Israel. Now, if we're honest about that, that sounds kind of silly to us in some ways. Like, how can an animal fix, killing an animal fix what people have done? The New Testament actually tells us in the book of Hebrews that those animal sacrifices 
didn't really have any power in and of themselves to do anything about sin. They didn't have any power to, to cleanse people from sin. But they were meant to point to someone who did have the power to do something about sin. They were meant to point to someone whose sacrifice really could atone for our sin. They were meant to point to another lamb. John the Baptist looks at Jesus Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Samuel is pleading with God on behalf of the Israelites, saying, Accept the blood of this Lamb for the punishment for the sins of your people. Jesus says, Accept my blood as the payment for the sins of my people. Samuel was calling the people to trust in the sacrifice of this Lamb. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus does the same thing. Uh, if you or I are accused of a crime, you know, we do have the option of defending ourselves in a court of law. Uh, one day we'll each stand before God and have to give an account for all of our fault, words, and deeds. And I'll be honest, on that day, I don't want to be the one pleading my case. I don't want to, I don't want to try to defend myself. I walk into the courtroom and everything about me will be laid bare. But then Jesus will stand up and Jesus will say, all of that is true. But this is one for whom my blood is shed. That is all true, but this is one for whom my blood was shed. Justice Kendrick's sin is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Is that, is that true for you? Is that true for you? Is your sin covered by the blood of the Lamb? If you're turning to God, you do need to repent. You do need to turn from your sin. But you don't need to turn and trust in your own repentance. You don't need to turn and trust in how well you're doing, in your own ability to, to be good. You need to turn and trust in Jesus. Trust in the Lamb. You've done that. You've done that. Well, we need to repent. We need to rely. And we need an intercept. Excuse me, we need to remember. We need to remember. We need to repent. We need to rely. And we need to remember. Um, we all have mementos, things that we use to remember big events in our lives. When Susan and I got engaged, I gave her a scrapbook that was filled with credit card receipts and tickets from places we had been, little pictures of things we had done together. And that was part of the gift that I gave her. We can remember uh, our courtship, so to speak. I've got football tickets at home from the early 1980s from going to Auburn games uh, as a kid that I've saved. That those helped me to remember this special time in my life. You, you all probably have something that a loved one has given you, something, something that somebody has passed away, and they give, you have this to remember them by. Like anybody else would be like, well, that thing's kind of silly. Why do you have that? But this is the way you remember how much this person meant to you. Maybe you have something that reminds you of some way that God's worked in your life. Some way he's worked and delivered you in some way. Something that helps you remember God's grace. Well, Samuel does something like that. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin. And called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Uh, they were delivered from their enemies. 
God had responded to their prayers. He had saved them. And so he sets up this stone to remember that by. He calls it Ebenezer, uh, which, which the Hebrew here means stone of help. Stone of help. And he says he's named it this because until now the Lord has helped us. On occasion we sing the hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You know the song. Well, the second, second verse of that starts out, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And probably most of the time we're like, Alright, I don't know why he's picking up an Ebenezer or what that's about. Well, this is, this is what that's about. This is where that song comes from. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. In that hymn, we're remembering how Jesus helped us, how Jesus saved us, how Jesus interposed his precious blood for me. We need a way to remember that. Because we're quick to forget the gospel, quick to forget what Jesus has done. We need an Ebenezer. And hey, guess what? Uh, we have one every week in the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, remember what he said? He says, do this in remembrance of me. And a lot of churches you walk into that have wooden communion tables that's carved on the front of them. Do this in remembrance of me. But we could just as easily carve until now the Lord has helped me. Until now the Lord has helped me. The Lord is the faithful Savior who saved me from my sin and brought me this far and who promises to bring me, bring me home. And I remember that. We remember that take of the Lord's Supper. Well, is God opening a door in your heart this morning? You've got an opportunity this morning to turn to the Lord. Don't, don't let that opportunity pass you by. Don't miss the chance. Don't delay. Don't let your heart grow hard to God again. Return to Him. Repent. Put away your idols. Rely on Jesus and then raise up an Ebenezer so that you can remember what God has done. You pray for us. Father, we thank you that the gospel is readily apparent in all of Scripture, Old and New Testament. We thank you for the Lamb who slain for us, interposed his precious blood that our sin might be forgiven. Father, would you help us even this morning to be those who cry out to you, who lament our sin, who assent to the fact that it's against you, who began the process of turning from it, and who cast ourselves in the mercy of Jesus Christ. How would you want to change in us? And would you continually remind us of your goodness and grace to us in the gospel? We ask it in Jesus' name.